Are you a caregiver? Or do you have a loved one who is aging and you or they might have questions that need to be answered? We have some answers that might help. This is Aging Life Network with Nancy Oriola. Today, you'll hear from experts and others related to the field of aging who will bring you answers, best practices, and tips for helping your loved one navigate this new part of life. Now, here is your host, Nancy Oriola. Hi, this is your host, Nancy, and today we will be discussing how using specific ways of communicating with those who have some form of dementia can mitigate problem behaviors and reduce the overall stress and frustration of caregivers, families, and the individual with the disease. For too many caregivers, trying to manage behaviors can escalate into a significant problem. For families experiencing a loved one who is suddenly yelling, hitting, running into the street from the home can be shocking and often bewildering. (laughs) Understanding the disease, such as the type of dementia, the stages of the disease, the physical impact um, to the brain and the body, et cetera, is an important first step. However, learning new ways of communicating can be just as important to your loved one living their best life in spite of this terrible and awful disease. I am joined today by two professionals who work every day with those suffering from a dementia and with their families. I have asked them here today to talk about something I imagine they both speak of and train caregivers about all the time. Please let me welcome Chris McCaffrey, a mental health professional and former program director with the Alzheimer's Association, who now manages a dementia care facility. And Cindy Brown, a licensed social worker and certified dementia practitioner who is the training and resource manager for a very large home care company called Home Instead in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you both for joining me and my listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before we dive into specific behaviors and communication solutions, I have a question for you both. When these behaviors occur, what is happening for the individual with the, with the dementia and what is happening for the caregiver uh, or the family member? Chris, can you speak to the person with dementia and tell us a little bit about what you believe is happening for them? Sure. Um, I think... All of that is predicated on the understanding that dementia itself is a progressive uh, brain disease. So when when you hear the word dementia, I think a lot of times people figure um, what they can anticipate or expect is memory loss, which is true. But the part that gets missed is that it also affects all areas of cognition. So you're not just talking about somebody who's going to be forgetful they're going to have difficulty with a lot of areas that we take for granted. Um, Judgment, reasoning, abstract thinking, and language, all of which are crucial for communication. Um, And so for the person with dementia, it isn't just that they aren't understanding the words, although that may play a part, but even as I'm talking now, whether you realize it consciously or not, you're conjuring up abstract images in your mind based on the words that I'm choosing, based on my tone of voice, my pauses, all of these paraverbal and nonverbal um, aspects of communication 
are informing the, the images that come to you as I speak. All of that aids in your ability to better understand what I'm saying and allows me to communicate um, more effectively. So if you can imagine that those areas are somehow impaired, um, it makes communication extremely difficult. And so for the person with dementia, depending on where they are in the progression of the disease, a lot of times what they're experiencing is probably extreme frustration at not being able to understand what the person is saying, um, frustration that the person is not understanding what they're trying to communicate. And so when we see behaviors, those attempts to communicate when all the other areas have failed them. Cindy, any anything to add to that about fear, anxiety, um, overstimulation? What can what might be happening when um, someone with dementia is um, beginning to quote act out? So I try to teach my staff to think about it as if you were in a foreign country, you did not speak any bit of the language, and you were blind and you could not see the person talking to you. And they are telling you something in an extremely anxious, very powerful tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And you're not sure what they're saying, but it sounds like they need you to do something because they're becoming more and more emphatic. And yet all they're doing is repeating words that you don't understand. And they're becoming more and more anxious. Because oftentimes Mm -hmm. I think our seniors with dementia are experiencing a total breakdown in, in, in language and in understanding. And Chris, Chris was right. You use your mind's eye when someone is talking to you to put the pieces together. And most folks with dementia, they lose their mind's eye relatively early in the disease process. And what about the family, Cindy? What, what are they experiencing as these behaviors and you know from the more day-to-day mundane to um, you know some of those really um, shocking behaviors that sometimes we hear about. I think a lot of times it's even harder for family members who are caregivers because they have known this individual for decades maybe even their whole life Mm -hmm. and they have a history with this person and their way of communicating with this person is based on how they've always communicated with them, the roles that they've always had. Um, I know that when I was communicating with my grandmother, I had a really hard time telling her um, something that might not absolutely 100% be true in the moment, like that it really, she really, you know, wasn't where she thought she was um, because I had been taught so strongly you do not lie you only tell the truth you are always respectful and sometimes when you're the caregiver your own biases based on how you've always dealt with that person it makes it hard to understand who that new person is because that's not the person you've always communicated with this is a new person where did this person come from And it's hard to identify what they might be thinking because you're thinking what your mom would have been thinking and your mom doesn't think that way anymore. Right. And it has something to do with perception. Mm -hmm. Um, So how you're presenting, well, 
let's not go immediately to saying that someone's saying it wrong. I mean, you may be saying it perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, perfect, right? Um, perfectly correctly in a calm voice, etc. But it's how it's being received. There's something about the filtering of the information that changes with this disease, with the disease. What I've noticed is that when a caregiver is trying to communicate to a person with dementia, we keep looking for different ways because the first way didn't work. So I'm going to try another way. And then when that one doesn't work, I'm going to try another way. And then when that one doesn't work, I'm going to try another way. And subconsciously we become more emphatic and we become even a little more anxious when Mm -hmm. we're trying repeatedly to get someone to understand something or get someone to perform a request and they can't do it, then Mm -hmm. our anxiety level changes, our frustration changes, Mm -hmm. and we project that Mm -hmm. very unconsciously in most cases, very unconsciously. And I'm not sure how you stop that. It's just human nature. So, Chris, um, tell us, how how does the environment impact... So regardless of what I say, how I say it, how does the environment impact the individual with dementia? Well, I think environment is huge, Um, both the the physical environment in which they live um, and and as you were just talking about, um, what we project, right? What, what, um, What kind of anxiety or distress is evident in us, right? Those are all environmental factors. I think an environment that feels contained and safe and less chaotic um, is always more conducive to conversation. The, the difficulty happens when we presume that less chaotic for us is less chaotic for them, right? This environment right now is pretty quiet by my standards. It's very conducive to our having a conversation and communicating with one another. But if I had dementia, um, I'm going to be distracted by the light coming in that window and the shadows that the blinds are making. I'm going to be looking at this and I probably don't understand that this is the equivalent of a, a camera telephone, right? In my mind, a telephone is an old fashioned rotary dial device that I have to hold one piece to my ear. I'm looking at this and thinking it's a strange kind of television and that I'm watching mm-hmm. that is um, not very exciting or entertaining, right? Yeah. Well, our listeners actually can't see us, but but you would be listening to three different people having a conversation and trying to uh, process, yep. right, the, the different persons and what they're saying. And yeah, so we may have a very quiet, calm room, but when three people are talking, it may be too much to process. Yeah, so having an awareness of the environment um, from their eyes, through their lens, yes, what's going to work for them. And Cindy, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I think it's important that we remember that we're not entirely sure when and how and specifically what spatial imaging changes for folks who have dementia. And so when we look at a situation through our eyes, they may not see it the same. They may see it dramatically differently. They may see it slightly differently. And one of the things that as caregivers, we are very, very accustomed to multitasking. We've got lots of things on our mind, lots of things we need to communicate. And sitting down and giving someone our total undivided attention, which is often what is necessary to truly connect with someone who has dementia is not easy. Mm-hmm. 
and being able to try very hard to eliminate your agenda and figure out what does mom get from what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes if mom's getting it, then that helps you, you're, you're, you're on the right track. If mom's not getting it and she's just getting more agitated or more uncomfortable or more withdrawn, then you have to be prepared to be able to pick up on that so that you can alter your behavior and your communication methods because yes, they can't right. alter theirs. So it's not simply how you communicate, it's how you observe and listen to, yes. to your loved one. Um, and, you know, um, assuming there's not an underlying mental health diagnosis mm. or a lifelong uh, mental health diagnosis, whether it was, you know, diagnosed or, or went undiagnosed, um, is this how um, paranoia can begin to present itself just simply um, as a result of the fear and the confusion? Um, can you both speak to... Um, why that begins sometimes to occur? Well, I've, I've always been of the belief that I think there are instances of uh, what we would call true paranoia, like a mental health issue, mm-hmm. um, company dementia. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that more often than not, again, we're laying our own template over what we're seeing. Yes. We see a particular behavior that we want to label paranoia, a, a gross misunderstanding of what's happening um, because they are watching our behaviors and completely misinterpreting them. They're hearing our tone of voice and completely misinterpreting it. They are um, trying to describe things for which they no longer have the language. So it sounds very bizarre. Um, and so I think it's easy to presume that they are paranoid and, and label it that. And really there might be other things happening um, Again, just huge misinterpretations of the reality. So, right. I mean, a common one is I, you know, I lost my purse. And uh, again, you know, because I don't understand, I have this disease. I begin to fear that someone has taken it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I know um, I I live alone now, but when I had... um, children in the house with me or, or my wife at the time, um, if I couldn't find something, what was my first thought? Okay. Who took my keys, right? I don't get to do that now by myself, so I know nobody took it. For <laughs> others around, my initial thought, even if I don't act on it or say it out loud, my first thought is, what did those kids do with my keys, right? Right. Well, in, uh, in November, we'll be doing a show with um, Dr. Jan Knofel, who you both know. Oh. And, We'll be talking about, um, you know, sort of the the line between what is normal aging and what is um, an impairment. And so a lot of our, you know, older listeners certainly will um, relate to, um, you know, the missing keys. But anyway, um, okay, so, um, and so for families, the, this can be quite, quite difficult. What are... What are some of the more, uh, we've only got a few minutes before our first break, but um, can you, Cindy, can you tell us what are some of the more common behaviors and communication issues that you um, hear families talking about? A lot of the communication and behavior issues that, that we deal with are 
centered around activities like bathing, eating, using incontinence products, um, uh, dressing, um, willingness to comply to requests, things that normally make perfect sense to us and we know immediately how we would respond to those requests if they were made of us. But we don't understand what it's like to live in their head because we can't really fathom what it's like for language to make no sense, what you see to make no sense and be completely and thoroughly foreign. And that's what they're experiencing, what they see, what they hear, and even sometimes what they feel tactilely is something that they cannot understand. It is totally foreign. And when you're trying to communicate things like that, and especially things that seem simple to the caregiver and the person with dementia just can't get on board, it's, it's frightening for a lot of family members. And so that's why some of the behaviors become so extreme because the expectation is there that mom can do this. Mom's always done this. Right. It's frightening. And I would say it often becomes the reason for burnout, mm-hmm. um, the reason people feel like I can't do this another day. So extreme frustration um, and total bewilderment. How am I going to, you know, I just can't do this. And we all know in the world of um, caring for others that the more we are trained to do the job that we've signed up for, the lower the stress that that we experience. And so it it um, this is really um, a very timely topic, I think, for more and more um, people, you know, as the boomers age, we're diagnosing dementia earlier. We've got, you know, 43 million family members that are providing care in some way to a loved one. Uh, they may or may not have help um, through home care or a facility, but, um, you know, there are many globally who are doing it themselves. And so we're hoping to help those folks today. And um, and even if you're not caring day to day, every interaction with a parent, um, you know, should enhance the relationship and the quality of life rather than the opposite. So we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, We're going to talk about, um, you know, conscious communication, how to do it differently and get from these two folks some of their knowledge and experience about what works, what might not work. We'll be right back. Thanks. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask and help you understand the maze of options. Their network of life care professionals, available to you through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing and calls, will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems. Aging Life Network's online educational center, ALN Academy, offers 24-7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families. 
through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Chris McCaffrey and Cindy Brown, and we are discussing um, using communication as a way to manage difficult dementia-related behaviors. Um, Before we move on to some of the specific um, suggestions and tasks, et cetera, Chris, I wanted to ask you, um, why is it that how we communicate with someone with dementia requires us to consciously communicate differently? Is that important? Yeah, I think it's crucial. Um, I, I think, as you talked about earlier, these are people that we've known our whole lives and we have sort of um, come to expect that we will communicate with them in particular ways, right? There's a, there's a rhythm. It's, it's a dance that we've established and we all know the steps really well. And now all of a sudden we've got somebody who's trying to do the tango while we're waltzing. Um, that will never work if we aren't willing to learn their dance, right? Um, and so it does require a real conscious effort to, as he said earlier, pick up on the cues, right? The nonverbal cues, the behavioral cues, um, but also to make conscious effort to speak differently, to use shorter sentences, to use simpler language, um, to try to pair um, pointing and cueing with our words um, to aid in the uh, difficulty they're having with abstract thinking. Um, all kinds of different things. Uh, I, I use an analogy and I, I'm always, I try to be very thoughtful about how I use it because I don't want it to be misinterpreted. But if I had, uh, if I was traveling um, with somebody and our plane was delayed and they were, they were starting to get hungry and cranky, um, I would not, I wouldn't try to get into a long in-depth explanation about how Denver is a hub and it's snowing in Denver and, and that delays all the flights nationwide, right? That's, that's all way too much information. What I would want to do is try to identify what's going to give them comfort in the moment. Let's get a snack. Let's find something to eat. Let's see if there's a place where we can relax and rest for a minute. I'm not going to get into trying to explain why um, things aren't working the way they should and hope that they're going to understand that. Yes, I, I can't tell you, even with, um, in, you know, in historically with staff, I would often say you're trying to reason with someone that has lost reasoning ability. Yep. And I think very, very often, and, and I, I think professionals do it, um, um, you know, unthinking uh, families certainly do it, often caregivers do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yes, being aware of what the brain can and cannot um, take in 
And as we said earlier, the perception issues, the processing. Now, sometimes you might, uh, you know, another thing I think of is the, um, you know, asking someone, uh, well, don't you remember that word? Or I think very commonly I hear care, I hear family members saying, uh, what's my name, mom? What's my name? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to that person that they feel like mom recognizes them and knows who they are. But it can be um, frustrating for the individual. They might remember, you're my daughter. They might, Mm -hmm. but they may not remember a name. And so those things can be be very frustrating. Um, Well, let's talk about uh, everyday tasks. Um, And I know... Um, Cindy, you train professional caregivers every day, and I'm sure you talk with family members who are doing some of these tasks part of the time, certainly. So let's talk about those everyday tasks. And you mentioned them earlier, bathing, showering, you want to give us, yeah, dressing, Um, even getting out the door, right? You're on a time schedule. You've got to get to a medical appointment and you've got to get someone up, ready, dressed. Might not be best to do the 8 a.m. appointment. (laughs) Definitely not necessarily the best time to do an 8 a.m. appointment. Right. Part of the challenge for folks who have dementia is that their brain has a very different agenda than ours. And we're looking at the timing of something. We're looking at our own expectations. And bathing is one of the biggest battles that both my professional caregivers and my family member caregivers tend to fight. Mm -hmm. And part of what I encourage people to do is ask yourself, what's the real expectation? The issue in my mind is not necessarily that we get Mary Ann to take a shower. The issue is we get Mary Ann to be clean. She doesn't have an odor, she's not dirty, she doesn't have a skin condition. So how we get her clean doesn't have to necessarily be a shower, which can be very, very scary and very discomforting to someone who has dementia. So oftentimes it's a matter of talking to the the caregiver about what the real expectation is. Do I really have to have the, the drama of wrestling your mom into the shower or is doing a really thorough sponge bath and making sure that your mom has clean skin, that she doesn't have an odor, and that she doesn't have a skin problem. Is that sufficient? Can we Mm -hmm. take her to the beauty shop once a week and get her hair done and not put her in the shower? Mm -hmm. Because being naked and being wet and being touched, for most people, even when you're not demented, is pretty short list of who gets to do that. Yes. And it's not typically our most favorite activity. Things like eating and, and dressing. I had one caregiver call me one day and she goes, Cindy, we have to be at the doctor in 30 minutes and she will not change her clothes. I said, is she naked? And the caregiver goes, well, no, she's wearing her nightgown and her robe and her slippers. And I said, well, if you can't go to the doctor when you're 89 years old in your nightgown and your robe and your slippers, where can you go? It was at that point, the issue wasn't that she changed into clothes appropriate to go to the, to the doctor's office. Yes. It was how do we get her to the doctor's office without making her extremely angry 
and, you know, basically forcing her to dress. Right, a power of the will. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. if the caregiver can change their expectation. Um, I had a client, a caregiver, family caregiver come up to me one time at a conference and she said, you saved my life last year. And after I got over feeling really powerful about that, I said, how did I save your life? And she said, you told me my mom doesn't have to wear a nightgown to bed at night. And I said, I did. And she said, yeah, you said that there was nowhere in the book that said mom had to change out of her clothes and get into a nightgown to go to bed. And we were having nightly arguments and big battles and nobody slept good. She goes, now we just go to bed. And, and I think you're so right about um, the same thing with the shower. In fact, I mean, studies, <laughs> I just read an article about older people and how much a shower can dry out your skin mm-hmm. and that older people really don't have to take daily showers. In fact, I think they might have suggested no one has to take daily showers, but, um, but particularly older people that um, it can it can um, create problems, skin problems. So it's true. We, we tend to project our imagining, uh, our expectation of what is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, something like, I don't know, eating ice cream at breakfast, right? Is, you know, is it the end of the world if I eat ice cream at breakfast? Is it the end of the world that I eat, um, you know, um, I don't know. Eggs Brownies for, for dinner. dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would argue that eating ice cream for breakfast is the start of a whole new wonderful world. Yes. <laughs> I think it's good for your mental health. <laughs> yes. You know, one of the things I've learned from working with folks who have dementia that I think we sometimes forget, if something doesn't register in the demented mind and the demented experience as good, it typically is going to register on the other end of the spectrum. There's not a whole lot of middle ground with folks who have dementia. Very rarely is something Mm -hmm. okay, or Mm -hmm. I'll deal with it. It is either good or it's bad. Mm -hmm. When 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 you extrapolate from that, I think that for a lot of folks who have dementia, the sensation of being wet and the sensation of water hitting their skin may actually register as painful based on their, based on their response. Mm-hmm. You know, I've walked by a shower room and I've heard someone saying, you're hurting me, you're hurting me, or you're killing me, you're killing me. Yeah. And I think that that's really important that we listen to that because it may be that the sensation they are experiencing at that moment is indeed so bad that it's painful. Threatening, life-threatening, yeah. painful. Right. And, and even if it's not yes. painful, why would they choose to, they're obviously engaging in a behavior that's designed to make us stop. And they're pulling out all the stops to get us to listen. And so it behooves us to listen. Right? People don't resort to um, accusing others of hurting them unless they really have some strong feelings about what's happening. Right. And they don't have the language to say, um, sorry, but what you're doing right now is really uncomfortable and I would prefer that you leave me alone. Or they might say, leave me alone and we continue until they're yelling, you're killing me. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some of the ways um, that we can begin to communicate differently? Are there 
Are there ways we, the caregiver, the family member, are there ways that we can um, act differently, say things differently, behave differently? Um, can we get a little specific for folks about that? Um, is it better to direct someone, it's time to take a bath? Or do we ask, would you like to take a bath now? I mean, you know, that, that I'm getting at that sort of question. I think it depends on the person and the situation. I think the most important thing that someone can do when they're getting when, when they're communicating with someone who has dementia is to pay very close attention to the emotion that that individual is is expressing. Because if that person is expressing an anxiety, it's probably not the best time in the world to say let's go get naked. Or if that person is exhibiting, you know, that they're tired or that they're frustrated or that they hurt. It seems to me that in order to accomplish the need that you have to meet the, the emotion of the moment first. And so if that person is frustrated, that's when things need to stop and things need to kind of back up and reboot. Or if that person is showing that they are in pain, then do we need to address pain issues? Their emotion is the most primary thing in their world at that moment. And when we as caregivers who are trying to communicate with them respond to the emotion then oftentimes we have a better chance of getting the outcome that we need. Yeah, Chris, you're in agreement? I, I am. I, I think it's important to recognize that um, a lot of the behavior that we have a tendency to label as... As um, what? I'm sorry. As aggressive really is not aggressive. I, I would say it's more defensive. Mm-hmm. In other words, they are responding to what they perceive as a threat. And it isn't always just a threat to their physical being, right? We, we can feel threat in many different ways. We can feel that somebody's threatening our intelligence or our independence or any number of things. But when I experience something as threatening, I typically respond with a more defended stance. The higher the threat gets, the more defended I become, right? The more protective of myself I become. I think often that's what we're seeing. And so to be able to minimize their perception of threat with our tone of voice, um, by offering, if we're going to offer options, only offer options that we are okay with. So if for whatever reason the shower really is important, I'm not going to say, do you want to take a shower, right? Because if I get a no, then I'm out of choices. I might say, would you like a shower or would you like a bath? Um, so that I, I am leaving it open-ended to get a response that works for me. Or you may simply start running the bath, and say exactly. it's bath time. Mm-hmm. Um, and make it as, as unthreatening as possible. Make sure that it's warm. Make sure that there's, you know, if, if there's music that they like, make sure that they are covered adequately right up until the last minute, or maybe even covered with warm towels during it, right? Mm-hmm. What I can do to minimize their experience of threat, um, the more effective I'm going to be. I think in uh, a, a conversation we had one time, Chris, you talked about um, the the threat that's posed for some people when you walk up behind them or very often people talk to seniors as if we, you know, all seniors have hearing problems. And so they will talk really loud and they'll walk up behind them and say, um, you know, it's time for your bath or whatever. It's time for lunch. But they say it in a loud 
way and the person is startled and right from that moment they they get into a defensive mode they may start hitting or yelling and mm-hmm. so again being conscious of all those things we talked about here today yeah. um is important yeah cindy one thing i have discovered to be very successful is particularly when you're talking to somebody who you're trying to connect really you're really trying to connect with them is say their name and part of it is saying their name not necessarily their role instead of mom it's janet because i've been janet my whole life i've only been mom for 55 years Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that is the most reassuring to the human person is somebody knowing our name that infers safety and familiarity and it infers that you care and so when you use somebody's first name it tends to maybe de-escalate the moment a little bit because you're watching your tone of voice but you're recognizing that person and you're saying their name. And sometimes that breeds a sense of trust. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because mom may not be who I'm identifying with right now, but I'm going to identify with Cindy. Okay. Yes. And so um, the, these methods of communication, they can really make things easier for the family member and the individual um, with the dementia. Is that, I mean, that's the goal, correct? Exactly. Sometimes the goal is to get them out the door to the doctor appointment, but um, the goal ultimately is, is to have peace uh, (laughs) in the day uh, to get through yet another uh, day with, uh, without, um, you know, escalating behaviors and, and all of that. And so when, when uh, we're, we're going to have to take one more break. And when we come back, what I would like to talk about is, you know, those moments when you just don't do it perfectly, you approach them wrong, you, you, you're just not in a conscious moment, you're, you find yourself in the middle of a power struggle, um, behaviors have escalated, And I would like to talk about how you um, train others to de-escalate those moments, if if you're willing to come back and do that with me. Yes? Okay. Absolutely. Um, In the meantime... um, I will say that some of some of these topics, um, Chris McCaffrey and I, a couple of years ago, had two very good conversations where we talked about this, and you can find those recordings on AgingLifeNetwork.com in our free online resource called ALN Academy, Aging Life Network Academy, where there are lots of these conversations as well as the newer uh, podcasts. So we'll be right back uh, with Chris and Cindy, and we'll talk about de-escalating when we're not doing it perfectly. (laughs) Okay, thanks. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. 
Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask, and help you understand the maze of options. Their network of life care professionals, available to you through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing and calls, will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems. Aging Life Network's online educational center, ALN Academy, offers 24-7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families. Through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Nancy, and I'm here with Chris McCaffrey and Cindy Brown, and I want to correct something I said just before the break. It's not always because we haven't done things perfectly, right? We may have done it perfectly, but it just didn't work. And so, um, you know, I just, I don't want people to, I mean, we we have enough guilt uh, without worrying that we created the problem, okay? Um, The disease created the 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 damn problem. So, um, but we we're now dealing with um, someone in full blown. They're angry. They're yelling. They're hitting. They're running around. Um, they've run into the street. Uh, what whatever. Um, and w- what can we do to get this under control or some form of control? Um, either one, jump on in. Come on. <laughs> well, I think uh, the, the first thing is we have to extricate ourselves from it. Um, ideally, those situations fewer and fewer as we um, bank experiences and sort of learn, begin to learn what works and what doesn't and avoid the things that don't work. Um, but inevitably that happens, right? So I think we have to start from a place of uh, a lot of self-compassion I think caregivers are notoriously um, deficient in self-compassion. They have a ton of compassion for other people and, and are very hard on themselves, mm-hmm. um, which I think is does them a disservice. I think it's really mm-hmm. important to remember, I, I haven't met anybody, professional or family caregiver, who wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, how can I screw up my dad's life today, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I really hope I get it right today. I love my dad. I want to do the best I can. They all wake up mine. Well, and, you know, you could literally be at the grocery store and somebody could do something, you know, at the grocery store or at the doctor's appointment or at the hair salon. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, it can be, in, you know, things can get started other ways, right? Right, right. And it's and your think- job, unfortunately, 
to try to bring the person back. Yeah. I so think how do we bring them back, back to what we were talking about before the break, just keeping our objective in mind, right? So at this point, it's if it's spun so far out of control that I'm all these other things, what was my main objective and how do I get that? I'm not going to worry about what's right anymore or what I should do or what I should have done. What do I need to do to be effective now? And if that means I need to pull myself out of it, stop mm-hmm. talking, if that needs, means I need to bribe them with ice cream or some other treat, I don't care what it is. I have to remember my objective at this point is to get them back where they're safe and to get this thing de-escalated and whatever it right. takes. Leave the grocery cart. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. What about, um, you know, one of the things that I have experienced in my years of working with people with, um, you know, significant dementia who are, and I often um, have been put in positions where I have to share, you know, some hard to um, hear news, um, you know, people become upset. And I find that um, if, even if it's, um, what's the word, even if it's pretend, um, I put on the biggest smile I have and I project absolute calm and happiness that unfortunately the disease is such, but fortunately in these moments, the disease is such that it, that alone can shift a person out of an angry moment Mm-hmm. to a calm moment. Have you noticed that? I think you just hit the, the nail on the head when you said shifting the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used the big grin and like that I've known you for my whole life and, mm-hmm. you know, we're just going to handle this. The other thing I've discovered is that when you make it your fault, when you look somebody in the eye and you tell them sincerely, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. Because you are sorry. (laughs) You don't really care where you got, where you are, but you're sorry that this is the moment. And when you say you're sorry, then it's not their fault. And we all take a step back from our defensiveness when it's somebody else's fault. The other thing that works really well for a lot of family caregivers is when you've said, I'm sorry, let's stop. And then when you, when you tell that person, I love you, mm-hmm. or I care about you, I teach my caregivers, I am so sorry, I really care. Because those are words, particularly I'm sorry, is, is one of those phrases that it's hard for people to respond angrily to. It's like when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, mm-hmm. you want to give them the universal sign of displeasure, and then they wave at you and say, I'm sorry, in their rearview mirror, you're like, ugh. Because you can't be mad anymore. They were, they were gracious about it. And when mm-hmm. you genuinely say, I am so sorry. Or uh, perhaps the reassurance, right? Using, it's okay. Yes. Everything's okay. Yes. And just in a sort of calming, de-escalating. Now, of course, you may need to. Oh, what if they're still just having an absolute fit. Sometimes the, the only thing that you can do is protect them for mm-hmm. the moment or the next few moments. We have a gentleman who he sometimes runs out into the street and it doesn't really necessarily really matter what, what the weather is. And he refuses to wear shoes. Yeah. So 
I taught the caregivers when he's going out the door, you go behind him and grab the blanket off the, the, um, the living room sofa. Mm -hmm. And when you get out there, he's cold and you're wrapping that blanket around him. And while you're wrapping him, the blanket around him, you're turning him back in the direction of the house. And Mm -hmm. typically when he sees the house, he'll start walking because he's still in the movement movement phase. Mm -hmm. And now he's walking towards the house, which is the whole goal in the first place. But at that point, all I want to do is get him out of the street. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of just protecting in the moment. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, again, ultimately the goal is is safety. <clears throat> I think that for all people, if, if we can remember, it's not always easy to remember in the moment, but anger, whatever comes under that anger umbrella, frustration, irritation, any of that, um, it's those are always secondary emotions. What comes first, those are usually, anger is usually a result of threat or shame. Mm-hmm. And so... I think what Cindy's describing and what we've been talking about is if I can take that piece away, if I can let go of whatever need I have to, to be right or to communicate or any of those things, if I can if I can remove the threat and the shame, the anger usually disappears with it. And I think that's what, what uh, Cindy was talking about when she says apologizing. So, yes, I love you. I'm so sorry. Everything's going to be all right. The reassurance. So you try the various, and then you might move on to, I can understand why, you know, start validating. I can see, I can understand why you're angry. Yeah. That that may or may not work. But, um, yeah. But our our need to communicate to them, like, how bad this behavior is or, or why they shouldn't do it. And we have to let go of all of that. Right. This is not okay. Yeah. Um, you can't go outside. That just heightens their, their sense of defensiveness. Mm, well, you get into a power struggle. Um, yeah. That struggle of, yeah, wills. or mm-hmm. When and, it comes yeah. to something like you can't go outside or you don't have your shoes on or you already are at home, if they're going out the front door, if they're already in movement, mm-hmm realistically how far are they going to get sometimes the best thing to do is just follow and Mm -hmm. deal with the moment as it evolves because sometimes this moment will take care of itself and if you can keep them safe you know till you get to the end of the driveway and then you know with the few minutes we have left um we haven't used the term redirect but that that is the term in the industry is it not that an individual's thinking is going in one direction and and um, the the caregivers are can you explain redirection to our listeners I, I think um, and it might be a matter of semantics but for me being directive um, I think is important um, when you're in the role of being in charge um, and I don't see being directive as being bossy. And I think that's where people get uncomfortable with it. They misinterpret or, or conflate the two um, mm-hmm. as being the same thing. Um, you, Nancy, were very directive about what this whole thing was going to look like. You gave us information ahead of time. Um, mm-hmm. You let us know what to expect. Um, mm-hmm. We then relied on you to sort of cue us throughout the whole process, which I think has led to it being a successful venture. But you were at no point like bossy or demanding or you know unreasonable. All the things that we sometimes assume uh, being directive means. 
<laughs> so when we talk about redirecting, for me, that's that's what I that's what comes to mind for me is I'm going to take charge of the situation, but that doesn't mean I have to be uh, inappropriate or overbearing or or anything else. Okay. Yeah. I teach my staff to be careful about redirection and that sometimes that's really not the first response because oftentimes if I'm concerned about stopping the behavior first and foremost and I'm so focused on redirecting, you yeah. miss the message of the behavior because the only way that, that many demented individuals have to communicate how they're feeling, what they need, what they're experiencing in the moment is behavior. So if you stop the behavior too quickly by redirecting you might mm-hmm. miss the message right. so i teach my staff if nobody's going to get hurt and nobody's going to call the police yeah. let it happen for a couple of minutes to see if you can figure out what's driving the behavior what's the emotion that's driving the behavior because mm-hmm. if you can touch the emotion sometimes it redirects the situation all by itself got it to clarify i, I think that's an excellent point so i want to when we talk about redirection I'm not talking about redirecting behaviors that I just find irritating or inappropriate for some reason. I really am talking about safety issues or. Right. Or someone, you know, you're on your way to, it's the shiny object syndrome uh, that many of us have anyway, but you know, you're on your way to the shower and um, you know, the, the distraction with, you know, something else and you're redirecting them back to, being on their way to the shower. So, okay. Um, well, I know we could talk about this topic uh, for a very long time, but we have a limited period of time here um, for, um, I thank you both for joining me today. This has been a tremendous amount of information and very productive and helpful um, for me and I hope for others. Um you can, you, the listeners, can hear this and more um, information about this topic and many other topics on our website, aginglifenetwork.com. Click on the ALN podcast button or click on ALN Academy and you can look by topic and um, hear some webinars um, podcasts and uh, read articles for those who like to do that. So um, I want to thank Chris and Cindy for joining me today. And I know that um, uh, the work that you do every day is really, um, you know, just giving a lot to those you serve. And I know that the families are very thankful. I did want to say, Chris, you're with a company that has several properties, JEA Senior Living. That's right. Um, And you have a dementia building that you manage. And Cindy, um, you're with probably one of the larger home instead franchises, I would think, in the country. Um, Mary Martinez, the owner, is an amazing person. And uh, pardon? Indeed. Indeed, yes. So, both of you, thank you for doing this. Um, I appreciate it, and I'll see you all next week. We'll be talking about social isolation with uh, a geriatric care manager and uh, the crisis um, related to COVID. Okay, thanks. See you all next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in this week to Aging Life Network. 
please join host Nancy Oriola for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We can't wait to talk again.